half of the reviewers said, are you kidding me? I just Googled this woman. She obviously wants to legalize cannabis. We cannot let her do this study. And after that came back, um, my supervisor uh, at Alcohol Research Group, an amazing scientist named Lee Cascudis, called me into her office and she said, look, this is the, the options you have moving forward. You can either play ball and study what they want you to study so that they'll give you grant money and study teenage use and study harms and study prevention with the hope that eventually they'll come around and start funding things that are a little bit more objective, or you can go out on your own. And I decided to go out on my own because I just couldn't fathom using my time, energy, and brain power to talk about how to keep cannabis out of the hands of kids when people were still going to jail for cannabis. Welcome to episode 36 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact. Today's episode features Dr. Amanda Ryman. She's Vice President of Public Policy Research for New Frontier Data, a college professor, and founder of Personal Plants, a multimedia platform supporting the home cultivation of entheogenic plants, among many other roles. Dr. Ryman has been an incredible force in drug policy reform since the late 90s, and her impact can be felt throughout the world. Amanda and I discuss sports casting, failing out of college, social work, drug policy, cannabis data, psychedelics, growing your own medicine, Web3, and much more. When you get a drug policy nerd like me talking to one of the most knowledgeable and accomplished people in the field, you get a two-hour episode. Here is Amanda Ryman on People Are the Answer. Amanda, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure, and uh, it would be great if you could start off by just telling me who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. Sure. Um, so I'm currently based in Mendocino County, California, which is about two hours north of the Bay Area in the famed Emerald Triangle region, so basically where the cannabis is born. Um, my current role is many. <laughs> um, I wear several hats. Uh, one of them is Vice President of Public Policy Research for New Frontier Data, which is a think tank that does data analysis and economic projections related to the cannabis industry and cannabis consumers. And then I also have two businesses. One is called Personal Plants, which is a psychedelic plant nursery. And then the second is Sacred Garden, which is a Web3 platform that works on the issue of conservation and cultivation of psychedelic plants. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Excited to dig into those. And uh, in general, what would you say motivates you? What motivates me? Um, I think injustice. To be honest, um, a lot of what brought me to drug policy work uh, was my background as a social worker and recognizing the impact of drug laws as they relate to justice, freedom, and the ability to live a fulfilling life. So what really motivates me is the idea that people should be able to take control of their own health and welfare. Um, they should be able to choose what is right for them. And they shouldn't be put in jail just for ingesting a substance, growing a plant. And so it was really that fundamental right that motivates me then and motivates me now. I can certainly relate to that. appreciate you sharing. Um, where did you grow up and what was it like there? Oh, goodness. So I'm a Midwestern gal. 
Um, I was actually born in New Jersey, but I only lived there for two years. Uh, my dad, I was a phone company brat. So my dad worked for AT&T and then uh, the Bell companies. And we moved around the Midwest a lot because of that. So I grew up in Chicago and Detroit and Indianapolis, um, very conservative areas, uh, very white, uh, Indianapolis especially, <laughs> very Christian conservative. And so I wasn't really exposed to a lot of diversity or culture, um, even though growing up Jewish, there were no Jewish kids where I lived in Indiana. Um, there were in Chicago, but I was only there for a few years. Um, so I really grew up in an area that was very much anti-drug. It was the 1980s and 90s, um, you know, the Red Ribbon Week and Just Say No and really, you know, the whole shebang. I had exposure to cannabis and alcohol in high school, but it wasn't really until I graduated from high school and went to college at the University of Texas at Austin that I really got a crash course on not only what drugs were and how they worked, but the role that they played in society and in people's lives. And to be honest, you know, growing up, I had no designs on going into drug policy or anything uh, related to that. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. So I was a radio gal in high school. We had an FM station and I used to do play-by-play -play for volleyball and I wanted to be a sportscaster. You know, th this was at a time when there was a lot of talk about women's role in sports and yeah, you may remember the whole locker room scandal and should women reporters be allowed to go into men's locker rooms and, you know, going again back to my fascination with justice I felt that the way women were being treated in the sports arena was very unjust, and I wanted to play a role in changing that. But after I got to college, I really discovered this whole fascinating world of drugs and alternative lifestyles and realized that there was a much meatier topic for me to get involved in around justice uh, than just going into the locker room. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. <clears throat> Quite the transition, but uh, certainly understandable. Um, are you still into sports? Uh, I would say not as much as I was when I lived in the Midwest. So my family is very much into sports. Like my mom probably knows more about basketball than like most people just in the average world. I mean, it's really amazing. My grandma knew every single player on the Atlanta Braves. Um, so my family is very, very much into sports. So growing up, uh, you know, because my dad was in the corporate world, we used to get tickets to go see the Colts and the Pacers and the Bulls and the Bears. Uh, so I grew up with all of that. Um, you know, now I live in the country <laughs> where we don't really care about sports. And so I haven't followed it as much as I used to. I will say the one exception is hockey. Uh, my partner is a diehard St. Louis Blues fan. Uh, he grew up in St. Louis. So that is the one sport that I have not been able to escape from. But I these days, I, I'd rather be out there running around and being active than sitting and watching any kind of sports on TV. Understood. Well, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware or not. I'm a huge, huge hockey fan, um, especially that local avalanche who won the cup this year. But I'm sure it was fun for you guys when the Blues won in 2019. Oh, we still talk about it. It's still a, a regular part of our daily discussion. Um, we refer to it all the time. Um, and I did know that actually about you and hockey. Um, so yeah, that, that was a sport I never paid attention to growing up, but now uh, it's definitely the sport I know most about. Awesome. Glad to hear that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned time at UT Austin, um, you know, 
what was that like? You know, what did you study? Ah, what did I study? I studied not going to class. That's what I studied. Um, So, you know, it's interesting because it was a really big turning point in my life. You know, I always was a very high achiever in school, Um, always did very well with minimal effort, you know, just kind of one of those kids that was smart. And so there were a lot of expectations about college and, and how well I would do there. I chose to go to UT Austin because it was away from Indiana. And I wanted to go to a whole new community, a whole new place. It was a gigantic school. And like I said, I wanted to be a sportscaster. And they really had an amazing athletic program there. And I did. I started working at the radio station. I started doing play-by-play for volleyball. But, you know, as I mentioned, growing up in Indiana, I didn't really have exposure to people that were different, whether that was people that lived alternative lifestyles based on their looks or their sexual orientation or their gender identity or even the clothes that they wore, the music that they listened to. I mean, everyone in my high school was the same, pretty much. So when I moved to Austin... I met this group of people that were totally different. I mean, these were folks who, you know, weren't in college and, you know, were staying out all night and and experimenting with different substances and, you know, kind of really living the Austin lifestyle in the mid-90s. And I have to say, it fascinated me. And it fascinated me not from a like, oh, I've been looking for this type of escape all my life and here it is but almost like an anthropologist who goes to a different culture and is just so fascinated by how different it is than their own and has a huge desire to learn about that culture and to almost immerse myself in it while still understanding that it wasn't really my culture. And so for two years, I did that. And I did not go to class because what I was learning from this cohort of people was way more interesting to me than my intro to journalism or intro to psych or any of the other kind of froofy classes that they give you as a freshman in college. But I did make the fatal error of not actually unenrolling myself. So I was still enrolled in school. I was not going to school. Um, I was instead kind of engaging in this rave lifestyle, like I said, of the mid-90s that we did. And after about two years, the school was like, yeah, you're not going to be coming back here as a student. Your GPA is like 0.00 something. You basically haven't been to a class in a year and a half. So we're no longer going to accept you as a student. Um, At that point, my parents were like, all right, you're not going to just stay in Austin and do nothing. So you're going to come home to Chicago, which is where they were living at the time. And even though that time in my life, you know, failing out of college and having to go home and, you know, kind of having this kind of lifestyle might be viewed as some as like a low point of like, you know, oh, that was Amanda just kind of figuring out how to be an adult. But the reality is, is it was that experience that sent me on the trajectory for the rest of my life, because it was that experience that showed me the harms of the drug war. It was that experience that showed me what it looked like to be addicted to heroin, what it looked like to be addicted to different drugs, because I had friends that had all kinds of substance dependence issues, what it looked like to not get your mental health needs met and to be in the revolving door of the criminal justice system until you basically died. I mean, I saw that happen to quite a few people. And so if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think I would have felt this kind of fervor inside myself to do whatever I could do 
to change this and to make things better for folks and to really just flip the paradigm in society about what it meant to use substances. And it was really those two years almost of like anthropological research in Austin um, that made me feel that. And I think if I hadn't gone through that experience, if I had just gone to college and taken my classes and become a sports broadcaster, I would have been a really damn good sports broadcaster, but I absolutely would not have felt this inside light inside of me and fire to address these issues of justice. I can certainly appreciate that. It sounds like it was a a pivotal moment in, in your life. And you're certainly not the first person I've interviewed on here who's had a, a pivotal moment that involves, you know, ending, getting out of school or dropping out or failing, whatever. And that, that's actually a relatively common theme amongst people that create tremendous impact. Well, that makes sense. I mean, right, it's through struggle that we grow. And I, I really believe that. And, you know, I wasn't growing that much as an adolescent because all of my needs were taken care of. Um, I lived in a very safe uh, environment. Um, and so it really wasn't until I met struggle and had to really question what I wanted to do and who I was and what my identity was that I feel that the growth came. And, you know, since then, I haven't been afraid of struggle for that reason, because I know that it will be paired with growth. Um, so I think that was the experience that also really taught me that life lesson. Yeah, that that can be super powerful. And um, so you went back to Chicago and then uh, I believe you spent time at University of Illinois at Chicago. I did. Well, first I had to go to community college because, as I mentioned, my GPA was like 0.005. And so no four year school was going to bring me in at that point. So. I went to College of Lake County, which is a small community college in Northern Illinois, almost to Wisconsin. And, you know, I will say, and I, I've been a college professor for over a decade, I had some of the best professors of my life at community college. Um, these were folks that really cared about what they were teaching. They really wanted to mentor students. They were not phoning it in. And so even though I was only there for a year and a half, I really fell in love with education not the way it was presented to me in high school and at UT Austin, but the way it was presented to me there. That's what really made me fall in love with this idea of teaching, with this idea of connecting to students and the role and the power that you can have um, as a mentor uh, was really learned at community college. And then after I got my GPA up, um, I went to University of Illinois, Chicago and finished out my undergraduate degree in psychology. And then I wanted to go into counseling. I mean, my whole idea was that because I had so many friends in Texas that had substance issues that did not find good treatment, that could not find people to work with them who actually understood what they were going through, that my best bet was to become a drug and alcohol counselor. So I got a master's degree in social work because it was a two-year program, which I figured was very manageable. Um, I specialized in community and administrative practice because I was very interested in kind of community work and how that relates to policy. And when you're in social work school, you have to do two years of internship. It's a professional degree. Uh, so my second year or my first year, I was at the YWC, YWCA of Metropolitan Chicago as my placement. And I was doing what I thought I wanted to do, which was therapy. I was a therapist and um, we were providing free counseling for women and they would come in and I would talk to them for an hour and it was great. And they would connect with me and we would really try to think about their life and what was happening. But the reality was, is that after that hour with me, they went back into the world 
And that world was horrible to them. And it had to do with having drug charges. It had to do with having substance dependence issues. It had to do with economic opportunity and racism and sexism and classism and all the isms kind of coming together. And so after doing that for a year, I realized that if we don't change the system, if we don't change what happens to these folks when they leave the therapist's office, then my hour with them, even if it's the most profound hour of their lives, is going to be a drop in the bucket based uh, compared to what else they have to deal with. And that was really what compelled me to go and get a PhD because I felt that if I actually wanted to change the system and not just work within it, I had to go all the way. And partially that was because I was a woman and I knew that female social workers a lot of times are looked down upon and, and aren't kind of given the respect that they deserve. So I felt, well, if I get a PhD and I'm a doctor, then people have to take me seriously. I was kind of right. Not all the way right, but I was kind of right. So, so then you ended up going to UCLA Berkeley for your PhD? I did. Um, I was in Chicago and in 2001, I think, I read a book called Drug War Heresies that was written by two men, um, Rob McCoon and Peter Reuter. And Rob was at Berkeley in the Goldman School of Public Policy and Peter was at University of Maryland. And it was the first book. And, you know, I had been reading the works of Ethan Nadelman now for a while. I really started my investigation into all of this in 1998. So like about three years prior, I had already attended the Students for Sensible Drug Policy inaugural uh, national conference in D.C. in 98. Like I was really starting to get into it. But what I found was that a lot of the rhetoric on both sides was very politically motivated and was very emotionally motivated. Um, so Drug War Heresies was the first book I ever saw that was objective, where they actually took policy theory and applied it to drug policy and to look and see if the policies we were enacting were actually going to help us meet our goals. And, you know, shocker, they won't. But the fact that these two men actually were sophisticated enough and were willing to move beyond the rhetoric in order to apply this type of model to drug policy I felt this is where I have to go. Like, these are the people I have to study with. So I applied to Berkeley and I applied to Maryland. Did not get into Maryland. I did get into Berkeley. And so off I went in 2002 to start the PhD program there. And I mean, given that you're kind of still in that area of the country, uh, must have been a pretty transformative experience. It was. You know, it's funny. I grew up in the Midwest, like I said, in smaller states. Um, I'd only been to California one time uh, before I moved out here, and that was when I was around 15. My family went to L.A. I, you know, going back to sports, I actually thought Oakland was in Southern California because of the Raiders, because it was always like the, it was the Oakland Raiders and it was the L.A. Raiders, and I just assumed they were moving around to cities that were near each other. So when I came out to the Bay Area to buy a house, like kind of get my life, I really had no idea where I was going. Um, I'd never been to Northern California before, oh, but I fell in love with it immediately. I mean, a big part of that was the weather. I mean, you have to face it when you grow up in the Midwest and then you move to a place where it's 70 degrees in November, you pretty much feel like you've died and gone to heaven. Um, and I still feel that way, even though now I live in a much hotter part of California but I was amazed. And, you know, one of the things I was most amazed about, which I know we're going to get into more, was the medical cannabis scene, right? So, like, I'm moving to Oakland in 2002. 
And around that time, you saw a proliferation of cannabis dispensaries, in part because of the rule that was passed in uh, SB 420 that said that medical cannabis patients did not have to actively participate in cultivation in order to have the rights and privileges of belonging to a cannabis collective, which really opened the door for storefront dispensaries. So moving to the Bay Area in a time when in Chicago, it was still very, very much illegal was just a surprise. Because let's remember again, this is like early, early internet days. So it's not like everyone around the world knew what was happening in the Bay Area. You know, we didn't see all the news articles and ads for dispensaries and all of that. So we were pretty much kept in the dark in Chicago about what was happening in California until I came out here. And about a week before I left Chicago, my brother and I were at a show um, and he lit a pipe in the crowd and security immediately came and like marched him out of there. And literally a month later, I was in San Francisco at the Fillmore and people were whipping out three foot bongs on the floor while the lights were still up before the act had even come on and no one was saying anything. And that was definitely an aha moment for me. It was like, wow, like they've really shifted the culture here in a way where I don't think it's going backwards. And like, what does that mean for my passion, which is to engage in this on a justice level? And so it was almost like the universe because none of this was planned. Like, I didn't know I was walking into this whole cannabis scene. You know, I didn't understand what was happening out here. I chose Berkeley because of Rob McCoon and his writings. And now here I was all of a sudden, not just a PhD student in Berkeley with all this happening, but also a medical cannabis patient. So I was somebody that had access to these dispensaries, to the movement as it was happening. I, to this day, could not have designed a better set of circumstances for myself in order to start studying cannabis uh, at the time that I did. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's really interesting to hear, especially, you know, sort of in the earlier days of the internet, kind of walking in, getting a little bit of a culture shock and really just an immediate contrast in the level of freedom between the two places. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I remember the first time I went to a dispensary. So, you know, after I moved to the Bay Area, it was recommended to me that I get a doctor's note, which I did. And, you know, coincidentally, I do have arthritis and degenerative disc disease. So I do have legitimate reasons to use medical cannabis. You never thought I'd be able to access cannabis for those reasons living in Chicago. Um, But of course, I was using cannabis for those reasons, but just buying it on the unregulated market. So when I moved to the Bay Area, my friend was like, well, you should go to see a doctor and get a recommendation, which I did. Um, I went to the Cannabis Buyers Co-op in Oakland and got my card. And there was a dispensary around the corner uh, called Care at 19th and Telegraph in Oakland. And I walked in up to the counter and I swear I was speechless for a good three or four minutes. Um, You know, the the fact that I had all these products to choose from, edibles, like, you know, back in those days, they were very much ripping off other companies. There was no like copyright rules. So Mickey Martin, who's a longtime activist in California, had tainted edibles. So he had like stoners instead of Snickers and Reefer's peanut butter cups. And I mean, it blew my freaking mind. Um, And I remember the guy behind the counter I finally said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm taking so long. You know, I'm from Chicago. I just moved here. And he was like, yeah, that's okay. I'm from Maine. And I mean, back then, Maine didn't have anything either. So, you know, it was like people from all over the country were really recognizing what a unique situation was going on there. And little did we know, it was just kind of the beginning 
um, right, of, of this movement of legalization across the country. So once you finished your PhD, what did what was the next step that you took? Well, uh, so I did a postdoctoral fellowship uh, after my PhD with the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. Um, they had the alcohol research group. Um, they did not have any cannabis research group the way they do now. So I thought, well, the alcohol folks, you know, they, they kind of study cannabis peripherally. So I did a postdoctoral fellowship with them. And, you know, during that time, I really realized that the federal government had no interest in studying the benefits of cannabis, uh, cannabis use in the general population, non-harmful cannabis use. Really, the only thing they were interested in is harms from cannabis and how to keep cannabis away from teenagers. And so uh, when I was doing the postdoc, uh, the National Alcohol Survey is something that's administered by the Alcohol Research Group. And it's this very lengthy survey that we do every couple of years to try to get a handle on how much the country is drinking and what they're drinking. And so it asks them all about, you know, what type of alcohol do you drink? How often do you drink? Where do you drink? With who? Um, they even go so far as to have you pour the amount of you usually pour into a drink in a beaker that they send you so they can measure how much you're drinking. I mean, it's pretty extensive, but we do it because the National Institute on Alcohol and Alcoholism, or NIAAA, feels it's important to understand how the country drinks and what the potential harms might be and what their behaviors are like. So, you know, me as a scientist thought, gee, it'd be really good to have this information about cannabis. Because back then, the only information we had came from our national surveys, basically National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which asked you if you'd smoked a joint in the past 60 days, I think. Um, the Monitoring the Future Survey, which is for teenagers, which asked them if they've used cannabis. And NISARC, which is an um, epidemiological study that the U.S. does that basically asks people about health behaviors. And they had a little bit about cannabis in there. So I wrote a federal grant to do like a national alcohol survey, but for cannabis and to really look at what people were consuming, how often I had Sprint was going to create an app for us to use so that people could actually take pictures of the vessels that they were using so we could try to assess how much they were consuming. Anyway, long story short, I submitted the grant in 2008 and half of the reviewers said, oh my gosh, we have to do this. This is so important. I can't believe we don't have this information. And half of the reviewers said, are you kidding me? I just Googled this woman. She obviously wants to legalize cannabis. We cannot let her do this study. And after that came back, um, my supervisor uh, at Alcohol Research Group, an amazing scientist named Lee Cascudis, called me into her office and she said, look, this is the, the options you have moving forward. You can either play ball and study what they want you to study so that they'll give you grant money and study teenage use and study harms and study prevention with the hope that eventually they'll come around and start funding things that are a little bit more objective or you can go out on your own. And I decided to go out on my own because I just couldn't fathom using my time, energy, and brain power to talk about how to keep cannabis out of the hands of kids when people were still going to jail for cannabis. So I decided that I would kind of go out on my own after that. Um, I took a position at Berkeley in administration uh, in the School of Social Welfare while I, I kind of tried to figure out my next move. And then in 2010, I approached Berkeley Patients Group, which was and still is one of the oldest dis dispensaries in the country, 
about being their head of research and patient services. You know, they didn't have anybody to do that. No dispensary in 2010 had a head of research and patient services. But Berkeley Patients Group used to offer quite a few services to their patients, free massage and acupuncture, legal help, food, entertainment. So they definitely had a reason to have someone come on and do that. And they had a lot of patients. And one of the things I learned after doing my doctoral dissertation on medical cannabis dispensaries is that patients love to fill out surveys. Um, they love to be asked about their cannabis use. They love to talk about how it's helped them. So I figured that Berkeley Patients Group would be a good place to kind of pilot a cannabis research program. So they agreed. Um, I came on, and I know we'll talk more about this, but I did a study on the use of cannabis as a substitute for alcohol and other drugs, and that was back in 2008, 2009. So I published that while I was working for Berkeley Patients Group. And then in 2012, uh, they got shut down by then District Attorney Melinda Haig. Do not like her. Um, she shut down several long-standing dispensaries, including uh, she tried to shut down Harborside. She shut down the Vapor Room in San Francisco. Uh, she shut down Berkeley Patients Group. And these were all dispensaries that had the blessing of their locality. So Berkeley Patients Group went to a delivery-only model until they could reopen. And I basically left there in 2010 or 2012 and jumped right into Drug Policy Alliance, which I know we'll also talk about. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about Drug Policy Alliance. It's an organization that I've done some work with over the years, and um, you know they've been incredibly impactful in uh, the effort to end the war on drugs. Um, you know, how did you end up there? And um, I think you spent about five years there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was a huge fan of Drug Policy Alliance from the beginning, because when I was first doing research into the drug war in the late '90s. They were one of the few organizations, and they were called the Drug Policy Foundation at the time. Um, before that, they were the Lynn Smith Center. They were really one of the only organizations that was putting out facts about the drug war, like not just rhetoric, but actual facts. And there was a great website called drugwarfacts.org, which I don't know if it's still around. It might be in a different iteration. But that was such a treasure trove of information back in kind of the web 1.0 days where there wasn't any interaction. It was just looking stuff up and then seeing static lists of things. Um, you know, that's where they were really opening my eyes as to what was happening with the crack cocaine sentencing disparity laws, with the um, collateral sanctions associated with having a drug felony. And when I went to the Students for Sensible Drug Policy Conference in D.C. in 1998, Ethan Nadelman was a keynote speaker, and he was the founder of Drug Policy Alliance. And I was so taken with him. And I think part of the reason, and I've told him this many times, is that when he speaks to a crowd, I feel like it's when my rabbi used to talk to the congregation when I was a kid. It's like he connects with every single person in the audience. He's not talking at them. He's having a discussion. And I just was like, oh, this is how you do it. Like, this is how you talk about a topic that people are very nervous to have a discussion around. So after his speech was over, I waited for him at the stage door, like a little fangirl. And I met him and I introduced myself. And I said, you know, someday I would love to work for you. And this was when I was, you know, just getting back to University of Illinois, Chicago. I was an undergraduate and he was very nice. And he was like, oh yeah, you know, someday that would be great. And then in 2012, right when I was leaving Berkeley Patients Group, I saw that Drug Policy Alliance had an opening for a California policy manager. 
And I felt like, all right, this is the time. Like, you know, this is the time. Berkeley Patients Group was closed. I was angry. I was really angry for the employees who had to get laid off, who had benefits and families. And I was like, does Melinda Haig even care that, you know, she's making this decision and it's impacting all these families? So I felt really riled up. And it was a perfect time for me to jump into policy, which has really always been, I mean, policy and research have always been the two things that excite me the most. And, you know, I had done some research and now there was a really an opportunity to get into policy. So I applied for the position. Um, it was California based. It was perfect. It was in Oakland. Um, so I got the position and I definitely reminded Ethan of our little exchange uh, when I had my interview. He kind of pretended like he remembered. He probably didn't remember because I'm sure so many people have come up to him, but it really just did feel like kismet, right? Like, yeah. like it was meant to be. It's really cool to hear how that came full circle. Um, I've been fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time with Ethan over the years and to hear him speak. And I certainly agree with uh, your representation of his speaking. He's a really powerful speaker that knows how to engage the audience. And um, also someone that's been uh, tremendous, you know, drug policy advocate over the years. Absolutely. And again, he kind of represents the person that believes that drugs should be legal and also was a PhD. Right. And so like, it's so interesting how our society has created this idea that these two things are mutually exclusive, that you're either a smart intellectual academic or you're somebody that supports drugs. And even when you look at like Timothy Leary, who was also a professor, as soon as he started to really get into touting the benefits of acid, it was like he was ostracized from the university world as almost this proof that like you cannot be an evangelist for substances and also be taken seriously as an intellectual. And I really admire people who do walk that line um, because I feel like it's needed, right? We need people that can kind of code switch and talk to the academic uh, group and talk about the research in a way that satisfies them, but also comes off to the community as somebody that really gets them because you're, you're one of them. And, you know, that role, that kind of dual role, I feel in a lot of ways has been the key to my success in both worlds. Certainly, I can imagine how that would be the case. You know, being in cannabis and drug policy, I, I've met people that cross that sort of border well, and uh, you're certainly one of them. Well, thank you. <laughs> and so you, you know, you spent five years at DPA, and I believe you continued to lecture at, at Berkeley? Yeah. So I started lecturing at Berkeley right after I graduated. I think they got me the summer I graduated. So 2006, I started teaching substance abuse treatment. And um, then over the years, I also started teaching uh, drug and alcohol policy, which was a graduate seminar. I taught research methods, which was a graduate course in social work. And then only because I thought it was a shame that we were in the Bay Area and that our school did not have a class on this, I developed a course about uh, sexuality and social work and talking about how sexual identity uh, interacts with social services um, and, you know, in terms of diagnostic criteria and, um, you know, some of the, the progress that we've made in talking about sexual identity. That had nothing to do with drugs, but I figure if you're not going to talk to undergraduates about drugs, talk to them about sex. Those are the two things they want to know about. I always felt that I had a much easier job than the organic chemistry professor and getting my students to do the readings and prepare for class and pay attention um, because I was talking about things that not only are sensationalized and interesting, but I feel that that time in your life of, you know, early 20s, late teens 
is really an important time to talk honestly and openly about topics like sexuality and substance use, because a lot of times it's a matter of safety and wanting to ensure that people that are getting freedoms for the first time, that are living on their own for the first time, have something to go on other than the horrific drug education that we're given and sex education that we're given in high school. Yeah, I'm sure that was tremendously impactful for a lot of those students. And I imagine many of them still think of those classes today and that they had an incredible effect. So I'm really glad you were able to teach those courses. And uh, I meant to ask on, on DPA, were there any you know big wins or things you were most proud of uh, in your time there? Well, legalizing weed in California, that was a lift. Let me tell you. Um, I, you know, I started at DPA in 2012. We were already working on it. Um, we were talking about, is it better for 2014? Is it better for 2016? Um, you know, it's, it's a long, multi, multi-year process to establish an initiative in a state as big as California. So that was, a work, that was work that I started in 2012 that culminated in November of 2016 when that passed. Um, but I, to this day, you know, Prop 64 is everybody's favorite hater uh, initiative. Everybody likes to talk about how terrible it was and how terrible the situation is here and all of that. And I get it. Um, you know, initiatives and legislation are nothing if not compromises. Um, you know, everyone has to be willing to give something up in order to get things across the finish line. And at the end of the day, I'm about justice. So I do not want people to go to jail and I do not want them to have their lives ruined over cannabis. And so, you know, a lot of building Prop 64 was negotiations about how do we maintain that justice while still understanding that we have to navigate the murky waters of prohibition and the fact that neighborhoods don't want it in their communities, that parents are upset about it, that we have law enforcement not on our side. You know, there were a lot of uh, forces that did not want this to happen. And I think a lot of times folks think that we were those forces and like we were the ones that didn't want those things to happen. But the reality is that California had 20 years to pass a state level medical program and they did not um, because the League of Cities and the police chiefs did not want that to happen. And these folks did not just suddenly roll over and say, well, it's initiative. I guess we have no choice now. Um, they fought it like they'd been fighting it for 20 years. So it was a lot of work to get it to a point where we were okay with what was going to happen and recognizing that we were going to get our justice needs met. And I, I still contend to this day that California was and may still be the most socially progressive uh, cannabis laws when it comes to social justice, when it comes to ease of expungement, when it comes to criminal penalties, when it comes to allowances for people with criminal histories to get into the industry, when we look at the community reinvestment program, which is $50 million a year that goes back to communities that were impacted by the drug war for community services, like that was not something you saw in any other state. Uh, leading up to California's legalization. So I do think the fact that DPA played such a role meant that we could take more of a justice frame, right? So the ACLU is very heavily involved. We didn't have these large multi-state operators yet. So we didn't have a cannabis industry that was coming in and saying, no home grow and only five licenses and everyone has to be vertically integrated. So we were able to not kind of fall to that model the way some other states did. 
I will say, you know, people often ask me if there's one thing I could go back and change about Prop 64, what would it be? And I don't think it's one specific thing, but I do think that we did not do enough to think about the fact that we had such an efficient and effective unregulated market and how hard it would be to get people to transfer into the regulated market. And I, I do not think that this is a nationwide problem. Um, states like Illinois that did not have a bright, shiny, unregulated system prior to legalization where everyone was still getting their weed in a baggie from some dude, people were happy to use a store, even if it meant they were paying extremely high taxes, even if it meant they had to order ahead of time and they couldn't even look at what they were buying. People in California are used to going to a store that looks just like a regulated dispensary, buying the same product that's in the regulated dispensary, only not paying taxes. And so I wish that California had done more in the regulatory process to bring those legacy operators into the fold, making it as easy as possible. Because if you don't get the legacy operators, you're not going to get their customers. And my hope now is that New York does not make the same mistake because New York is probably the other state besides California that has a bright and shiny, efficient and effective unregulated market that's been operating for decades where people just call a guy and he comes to your apartment and delivers it. If they want people to take use of the regulated market, they have to bring all those sellers into the regulated market. So I think that California had this unique situation. I don't think we necessarily could have seen that coming, um, but we should have. And so we should have provided more carrots for legacy operators to become legal we also should have given quite a hefty um, tax break to consumers until they were fully in the regulated market. Like we probably should have done no excise tax for the first five years. It definitely wouldn't have bolstered the tax figures that everyone was like salivating over, but it would have brought a much larger swath of consumers into the market, which would have increased their tax base. So anyway, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but definitely a cautionary tale for you, New York, if you're listening. Yeah, I mean, these those are really crucial perspectives on the California situation. I mean, like you said, that does get a lot of scrutiny from the industry as a whole, given the high taxes and the prevalence of the unregulated market. But you make really good points. I mean, people were used to doing things a certain way and it worked. And it's hard to get them to switch, especially when the prices are astronomical. So um, you know, I, I hope that California can find their way through it. Um, I'm really happy that you guys were able to get those justice elements included and set that example for the rest of the country. Um, certainly the most important part, in my opinion. And I'm curious, do you think that some of the regulations will get significantly revamped in order to try to get some of the people in still in the unregulated market to switch over? Well, I think there's a few things in California that they're trying, right? So they've eliminated the cultivation tax. Um, and that was a real huge burden on the farmer. Uh, they're trying to think about how to reestablish the other tax structure so that the burden falls in different places on the supply chain. But to be honest, I mean, if California really, really, really wants to improve, they need more retail. So, you know, what happened was, is that we had to, to secede local control. Uh, we had no choice. It's in the California constitution. Counties get to decide whether or not they have commerce in the commercial commerce within their borders. They get to decide if they want alcohol. I mean, we really couldn't force it on people. 
Um, but we did not do a good enough job of making it super turnkey and easy for localities to develop programs. So, of course, you had places that did it right away, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, um, Silicon Valley, uh, a couple other little places like Mendocino County, you know, has had regulations even before the state developed their regulations. But most of the state is bans. Most of the state, right? So you have the situation where California just licensed a ton of cultivation. And because we already had a ton of cultivation happening in the unregulated market, all these new gigantic greenhouses in the Salinas Valley, in the middle of the state, were just producing extra. Because we were already producing enough for the whole country with just the people that were producing before Prop 64. So now you have these very large greenhouses that are coming in that can produce product for much cheaper, um, that have much better margins, and that have large companies behind them that can pay for shelf space, that can have brand ambassadors, but there's just not enough retail. So if we don't have enough retail, then it's the smaller folks that lose out because they can't be in there fighting for shelf space and paying to play and doing all of that. So I think what we probably should have done is created some kind of licensing structure for cultivation that was a ratio of how much retail we had. And really thinking about, we're going to start with X number of licenses. As we increase in retail, we'll increase the number of licenses, but we want to make sure the price doesn't drop, which is exactly what it did. Um, we also need to help localities create regulations. Um, I think the state is realizing that and they're creating these kind of turnkey options where a locality doesn't have to pass their own regulations. They can just adopt the state regulations. So we need like a roadshow. We need someone to go to each locality where they've banned it and say, this is what you can do. It's super easy. We're going to set you up. Here's a person that's going to walk you through it. And then it really just comes about, about moral objection, which I think we're starting to see dissipate. But, you know, we have fewer dispensaries per capita in California than they do in Oregon. Um, and way fewer than Oklahoma. You want a good example of how state culture and regulations differ when it comes to cannabis and what that outcome is. Look at California and Oklahoma. Oklahoma, it's like $5 at the counter and you get a permit. They have so many dispensaries. It's unbelievable. And, you know, here in California, it's a struggle just to open a dispensary. They're all opening in the same places because there's only a handful of places that are hospitable. Right. So, you know, we really have to get the supply issue under control. And we also have to really work to open up retail. Um, and if that might mean compromises, there's a bill right now that's making its way through that would uh, require localities to at least allow delivery into their jurisdictions. Um, and maybe that's baby steps, but I think that's going to have to change. Interstate commerce will help, but I don't know how many folks will be left by then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for baby steps. I think these municipalities need to realize that people that live there are going to consume cannabis one way or another. It's like, are you going to make it convenient for them? Are you going to let them put that money into your area or not? So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. And I'm sure you and I could talk California cannabis policy all day, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep us moving. <laughs> okay. So after your time at DPA, you, uh, you went into the, the private market at Flow Cannabis? Yeah. So, you know, I, after I popped 64 passed, I kind of felt like I had done this thing 
that took years to do. And, you know, I wasn't as interested in like figuring out how the industry was going to be implemented. Um, and neither was Drug Policy Alliance. You know, they're there for the social justice. They're not there to like figure out like the regulations. Um, although maybe we should have stuck around a little bit longer. Um, but I, I think at that point, I felt like it was time to move on. And also around that time, I started to become interested in moving out of Oakland. I had been there for 15 years in downtown Oakland. Um, I enjoyed the convenience. I rode my bike everywhere. But, you know, maybe it was age. I was I turned 40 in 2016. Um, but I felt like I wanted to move someplace where I had more space, where I could actually have a home and not just a condo, um, where I could have a yard and get dogs and, you know, do all these kind of adulting things that I'd wanted to do. So I had been advising Flocana for a few years already, um, just, you know, as an unpaid advisor, giving expertise and advice as they were a delivery service, kind of navigating pre-legalization in the Bay Area. And after legalization, I was approached by their founder and he said, you know, um, we're going to be opening up this facility in Mendocino County. And I was like, oh, really? My partner and I are thinking of moving to Sonoma. You know, we may want to do something in cannabis tourism. And he's like, well, we're going to be doing tourism. Why don't you guys come up here and work for us? And so I was like, okay. Um, so, you know, we decided to move up to Mendocino County. Uh, I had never lived in a place this rural. Um, you know, even in Indiana, I was in the suburbs. So, you know, moving out to a place where there's no broadband and you can't always get a signal and, um, you know, people were raising their own cows and slaughtering them. I mean, it was like a whole new experience for me uh, being a city girl, but I loved it. And, um, you know, I really enjoy being up here. I enjoy the lifestyle. I enjoy the quiet. And when I was working at Flow Cannabis, I really enjoyed the community work because I felt like I was getting back to my roots as a community social worker. And so really my role at Flow Cannabis wasn't with the cannabis or selling cannabis or branding cannabis. It was talking to the non-cannabis community about what we do and getting involved in community organizations and sponsoring community events and kind of being a representative in the community of this cannabis company to show them that cannabis companies are normal and good. And, you know, hey, look, we're sponsoring this local auction and we're donating and we're showing up and, and we're cleaning and, you know, really trying to overcome some of that stigma around what it meant to be a cannabis company, that they're all hidden and nobody wants to participate or communicate or tell you who they are. And given that Mendocino is part of the Emerald Triangle, that was really the culture for a long time. I mean, everyone knew that cannabis financially supported this community but no one talked about it. You know, everybody's parent was a carpenter. You know, nobody talked about their parent growing cannabis. You know, they couldn't. Um, you know, people were buying cars in cash and, you know, were buying homes in cash. And, you know, they, they had to. But it was very much like a don't ask, don't tell part of the economy. And my role was to kind of bring it above and to say, no, you know, we grow cannabis and sell cannabis. And, you know, we have people that work for us who are part of this community and grew up here and, and belong here. And so it was really interesting because it was a community in a transition time between prohibition and legalization with very mixed feelings about what was happening to them. And so, you know, again, I found myself almost in a similar role as Texas where I was kind of thrust into this new culture 
and was observing it and learning about it and trying to figure out how to navigate my way through it. Sounds like it was a really interesting experience. And um, I can imagine the culture shock. And you spent, uh, what, a few years at, at Flow? Um, I was there from 2017 to 2020. So I guess like three years. You know, it looks like during that time and after you've accumulated quite a few advisory roles with organizations and companies. How did that come about? Are there any in particular that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I go back to how much I appreci have appreciated mentors in my life and how much I've appreciated people who are willing to just give me their time to talk to me about their areas of expertise and what they're passionate about and how much I've learned from them. So something I kind of always told myself was that when I was in the position of being the expert, that I was going to give of my time. And whether that's on being on the board or being an official advisor to someone or, you know, literally anybody can send me a message on LinkedIn and say, hey, can I talk to you for 20 minutes? I'm really curious about what you do. And I'm like, sure, because I, I just feel like I had a lot of those people who are willing to do that for me. Yeah. So a couple of the roles I played that I really enjoy. Um, so about for five years now, I've been on the board of the Cannabis Travel Association International, which used to be the Cannabis Tourism Association. And I'm a founding board member of that organization. And, you know, my interest in this, besides just the fact that cannabis tourism is super fun and I see like a huge future for it, was I felt like there was a lot of policy implications there. So in my mind, if I'm someone from Nebraska and I go to California and I have an amazing cannabis experience, like I go on a farm tour and then I go to a cool dispensary and I get to go to the lounge and someone's educating me. I go back to Nebraska and I'm like, you guys, we have got to legalize cannabis. Like it was such a good time. But on the other hand, if I go to, to California and I have a Marine Dowd experience, if you remember that from a few years ago, and I get a way too strong edible and no one tells me how to use it. And I end up in my hotel room thinking my pants are going to eat me. I'm going to go back to Nebraska and say, you guys, this cannabis stuff is not cool. And I really don't think we should have it here. So I almost felt like we had a responsibility in cannabis tourism to make it a good time so that we can further the goals of helping people understand how to use cannabis safely. Yeah, that's that's something I've thought a lot about in my time in cannabis is just being a responsible steward of the plant to people that aren't familiar with it. Um and just how one bad experience can make someone turned off to it for the rest of their lives. Like, like you said, with the edibles, I mean, it's so important to have instruction in how you're going in low and slow. And, um, you know, there's so many people I've met over the years that, you know, I talk about cannabis with them and they're like, Oh, like cannabis makes me paranoid or it makes me anxious. And I'm like, well, you know, did you, was that from the unregulated market? Like perhaps it's the specific thing that you were consuming, the specific genetics of the plant you were consuming, you know, maybe you'd have better luck with another product, etc. And I think that's such an important point you make that isn't made enough. Like these initial experiences are so important, especially for people that are bringing them back to people in their network. Absolutely. And, you know, it was that belief about the need for education and for people to really understand and honor the plant as part of the experience, which is one of the reasons I joined the Gangier Council. So that's another thing I do that I absolutely love. Uh, several years ago, I was approached by Greenflower Media, who I had done some work for already with classes and education, and they were starting this Gangier program, basically a cannabis sommelier 
somebody that would go through an extensive training and a, a test in order to earn that title. And their job would be to help people use cannabis, right? So really understanding the plant, um, understanding what is quality in the plant, which was very hard for us to determine under prohibition because we didn't have access. And even when we did, we weren't given information about the plant. So the Ganjier Council started meeting several years ago um, and coming up with curriculum and thinking about what would customer interaction look like. Um, you know, I developed the customer interaction protocol based on social work. So how do you talk to a patient? You know, what is a patient-centered approach? Um, how do you listen? Um, and how do you turn what someone's saying into advice? And so we really applied that to cannabis. Um, we also looked at the history of the plant and what people needed to know and the biology and the botany and the science and what we thought people needed to know. And we turned it into a very extensive online course. And then there's also an on-site training that's two days in Humboldt at the campus, uh, which is a beautiful campus in Miranda, California, where folks learn to actually assess cannabis. And we've got the jeweler's loop and we've got the sample and we've developed a systematic assessment protocol and we guide folks through what is good, well-cured cannabis look like. What are we looking for in terms of terpenes? You know, is it a single aroma? Is it multiple aromas? How do we describe the effect? How does where it's grown impact all of these things? And then students come back and take a three-part exam. There's a written exam. There is a customer service component. And then there's the systematic assessment protocol. They pass all three sections. Then they are a certified cannabis gangier. And they can go and promote themselves as such. And students are doing all kinds of amazing things with this certification. You know, everything from helping uh, dispensaries and distributors identify quality product on the farm so that they know what they want to purchase. Um, my little brother actually went through the first class of Ganjiers and became certified. And he now has a consulting firm called Fog City Cannabis. And he will literally get on your dispensary menu site with you and go through the products and help you figure out which products are going to be good for you. Um, and so again, that's the kind of thing that we want if we want people to have good initial experiences with cannabis. We have to take it seriously. It's not frivolous. It's not just something you can just mindlessly do. And I think that unfortunately under prohibition, it kind of got that reputation. And I'm hoping that we're bringing some mindfulness back to the use of plant medicines in general, but especially cannabis. Yeah, I'm really excited actually to hear about that program. I remember many years ago when Max was first starting Greenflower, talking about this concept with him. And we were you know, discussing it, trying to figure out like, how could this work? What is it going to turn into? And to hear you explain where it is now is just really exciting to me. And again, goes on that theme of being a good steward of cannabis. Um, I'm curious, you know, how long does the, the process take to become certified? Can, you know, is there an application process? Can anyone that wants to do it try? So we do have kind of an open enrollment period uh, once a year uh, for a few months where people can sign up um, and then we close that period. So I believe the period is now closed for this next round because we have to make sure we have enough slots and it's small. So, you know, the online courses, we actually also have a version that's just the online courses. So if you just want to take that, you can do that for a cheaper price. Um, obviously, you can do that at your leisure. 
but the in-person trainings, I think we cap them at 15 to 20 people. Uh, so, and you know, for the exam, we cap it at 20 people. So it is a very small, intimate experience. Um, people can come up and do the training and then take the exam like right after. We do not suggest doing that. Um, there's a very high failure rate uh, when people try to do that. We get why they do that because we have folks that come from all over the world. We've had folks come from Israel, from Germany, from the Virgin Islands, as well as all over the country, including places where cannabis isn't even legal yet. Um, so travel can be a lot, but we really recommend that folks do the online courses, then they come and do the two-day two in-person training, and then go back do a whole bunch of systematic assessment protocols, really practice. Um, there's weekly group Zooms where students practice together. So they'll all, you know, rate something and then they'll talk about why they rated it and kind of get used to it. There's a Discord server, there's a Slack server. So there's really a lot of ways for students to interact with each other um, leading up to when they take their exam. Um, and so they have as much time to do it as they wish. You know, there's no time limit. Uh, it's really just that you complete the first two components and then you come and do your test. Uh, Ricky Williams is in training to be a Ganjier. Um, he has not taken his test yet, but he has come up to do his in-person training. Um, so it's been really fun. And, you know, the council, that's been such a joy because these are all folks that I've known for 20 years. Um, we've all been working in cannabis together for so long. And we've all kind of dreamed about this opportunity to take all this knowledge we've been accumulating over the decades that we've been studying this and put it out there in a way that people are able to absorb and enjoy and get something out of. Um, you know, that is such, again, it goes back to the, the being loving to be a mentor and thinking about students watching my courses about the history of the drug war and on the science of cannabis and just feeling like I'm making a contribution. Yeah, that, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm pretty interested in doing it myself now that I've learned about it. Uh, so I'll keep you posted on that. All right. And briefly to go back to Cannabis Travel, Travel Association, what is the goal of the organization? I know we talked about, you know, tourism and policy surrounding it. So the goal is really twofold. Um, one is to provide a community for people that are in the travel industry and the cannabis travel industry. So it's pretty nascent still. It's very fractured and fragmented. So being able to connect with other people. So if you have a tour company and you want to connect with people that host a cannabis friendly B&B, um, you know, we work with Cal Travel and other types of DMOs that are destination organizations. Um, Visit Mendocino. You know, where we work very closely with them. Uh, so part of it is kind of trying to integrate cannabis travel into the travel plans of different localities and states and helping companies network with each other. But another big part of it is consumer facing, which is what is cannabis travel? You know, a lot of folks don't even really know what it is. They think, oh, does that mean that I can like smoke a joint in my hotel? It's like, well, yes, but also if you think about wine tourism, right? It's not just about drinking the wine. Well, that's a big part of it. It's about getting to see where the wine is produced, where the grapes are grown, getting to meet the winemaker, hearing their story, getting to visit regions uh, where the culture is very pervasive. So Brian Applegarth, who's the founder of the Cannabis Travel Association International, he's also doing the Cannabis Trail here in California. So there's other trails. There's a bourbon trail in Kentucky. There's a cheese trail in Vermont. Um, and so he's building the cannabis trail. It starts down in Santa Cruz. It goes all the way up to Humboldt. 
And it has um, stops that are key areas where cannabis reform and culture has taken place, key landmarks for people that want to really experience what the culture was like here in California. So starting in Santa Cruz with WAM, which was Valerie Corral's collective, the very first cannabis collective in the world, going up to Dennis Perone's uh, house and old dispensary in San Francisco, and then heading up to the Emerald Triangle and, you know, different places in Mendocino and in Humboldt that have really been kind of epicenters of cannabis culture. And so, again, it's not just about the consumption. And so the CTAI wants to not only build out this amazing sector of the tourism industry, but we want to message to the consumer and the non-consumer what the benefits are of engaging in cannabis-related travel. And something that's really interesting about cannabis travelers is that they're really into this effect pairing. So they don't want to just sit and smoke weed. They want to smoke weed and go do something, which is makes them a little bit more unique than the, the wine traveler that kind of just wants to sit and sip wine and eat cheese and crackers. The cannabis traveler is like, all right, I want to go to a dispensary and then I want to go kayaking. So I think for tourist destinations that also have a lot of adventure or museums or other things that appeal to travelers, folding cannabis in is really a way to enhance what they've already got going on. And I think California is going to be perfect for that. Las Vegas is perfect for that. Um, even places in New Mexico that really have a lot of hiking and, and uh, art galleries and things that are going on and kind of folding cannabis into that. And then, of course, New York, um, huge mecca for tourism. And so being able to fold that in where, you know, you're getting your cannabis and then tickets to a show um, and that that's all part of a package. I, I think is something that a lot of, of localities should be looking into. Yeah. Yeah. Vegas comes to mind as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially given the international destinations of, you know, places like New York and Vegas, it certainly is a great opportunity to both educate people and, you know, give them an enjoyable experience. Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, I mean, people, the hotels and things like that, like they want people to consume cannabis in appropriate places. Right. And so part of doing that and achieving that is giving them, an appropriate place to consume cannabis. And so I think a lot of the folks we've been working with at CTAI, hotels that are in cannabis-friendly destinations, are trying to figure out, like, how do I have a lounge? I also have a bar. What does that mean for my alcohol license? Like, how do I permit consumption so that people aren't smoking in their rooms? They're not clustered around the front door of the hotel smoking cannabis. So I think we're going to see kind of this era of kind of integration of cannabis consumption in spaces where people are traveling, um, where they're congregating, because we do want it to happen in an appropriate place, which is not like in the middle of the lobby, most likely. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. And, um, you know, in your continuation of being a, a steward of, of cannabis and its policy, you've uh, been a professor at Excelsior College and their cannabis control program. I've certainly heard great things about that program. Um, you know, how did you get involved and can you tell me about it? Sure. Um, so I was asked to be on the industrial advisory committee for that program when it was being developed. And one of the things that really drew me to the opportunity is that it's not a cannabis industry program. So, you know, a lot of education is for people that want to get into the industry. And while I definitely have a fair number of students who are interested in opening a dispensary or something like that, even more of them are going to be on the non-industry side of cannabis, whether that's in public health or enforcement 
or re regulatory services. Uh, Excelsior serves a very high number of veterans. It's actually the majority of our students. So you have folks who are currently in the armed forces, can't consume cannabis, um, can't open up a cannabis business, but work in public health or work in nursing and know that it's going to be a part of their work and want to learn more about it. From my perspective, that's an amazing opportunity because these are folks whose education at the default would not address cannabis. And if it did, it would be from that very typical prohibition framework, right? Um, people who are going to school to learn how to be in the cannabis industry, a lot of times they put a very rose-colored view of cannabis because these are folks that are embracing it and really like adopting it as their business model. I get to work with the folks who have a very healthy skepticism of cannabis. And these are the folks that are going to be in charge of whether or not you get in trouble or whether or not the business regulations make sense or whether or not the hospital that you're being seen at understands cannabis and how to work with people who use cannabis. So I feel like that's an unbelievable opportunity to educate those folks about the plant, about the history of prohibition, and about what healthy cannabis use looks like. So when given the opportunity to teach in their cannabis class, um, I absolutely jumped at it. And it's been a very rewarding experience. It's really great to hear. And to hear how differentiated that program is from so many others. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, um, you know, you continue to, to bring knowledge to consumers. And uh, one of those ways you do that is the personal plants platform that you've created. Uh, I'd love to learn sort of what led to that and how you started it and what it is now. Well, that's a really great question. Um, so I've, I've been growing my own cannabis for 25 years. Uh, I started in Chicago very much illegally in my little closet with my little 1000 watt high pressure sodium lamp that I got for Hanukkah. I grew a plant. I was completely hooked on this idea of growing my own medicine. Um, you know, and again, this was a time when I was relying on my medicine from a pager, from a guy in an alley. There wasn't even any smartphones. There wasn't texting. I mean, it was a process. So this idea, this like autonomy and freedom of being able to like meet my own needs and grow my own medicine. It was addictive. And so I just kept doing it. And I, when I moved to Oakland, I grew out on my balcony. And now that I live in Mendocino, I actually have like the big smart pots like outside and in the ground, and which is great. But I loved that idea of being able to grow your own. I also recognized over the years that the ethos around growing your own was still very much geared towards 18-year-old boys who were trying to grow a lot of weed in their parents' basement and were wearing like a bandana over their face so no one could see who they were. And I was like, well, where's the growing community for the rest of us? Like, where's the growing community for my mom and for, you know, other people that are just curious about growing one plant and don't want to like make it their livelihood, but just want to see if they can do it? So in February of 2020, I was at a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which was fantastic. And little did I know, it was about a month before lockdown. So I was practicing in like going inside myself before I even had to. But I came back from that experience with this concept and idea that I wanted to help people grow their own cannabis. And so that's really what personal plants was, was this idea of like developing a relationship with the plant. 
And so I developed this platform and we had a lot of recipes and blog posts and kind of like, this is what you do with the cannabis and here's how to grow it. And it was all really geared. I wouldn't say it was geared towards women, but it definitely had less of a masculine vibe to it and more of kind of like a Martha Stewart artsy, craftsy vibe to it. And I started doing that and I really enjoyed it. And it was something I was having a great time doing. And then psychedelics. Then psychedelics really started to come out in the public. And we started to see the laws change. Decriminalization was happening. It was popping up more and more in popular culture. And so, you know, going back to this idea that cannabis use isn't frivolous, neither is psychedelics use. However, I felt this concern that as we moved into this consumer packaged goods model of cannabis, we were losing our connection with the source, with the plant. And I saw that happen already with food, which I've written about, right? So how connected are we to the source of our food? How many of us can look in our fridge and tell you where that food came from, who produced it, how the people were produced it were treated, how the land where it was produced was treated, what the carbon footprint was of it getting to you, being what was the impact of the packaging? Like, we don't know any of those things. And we don't really want to know, right? We might buy organic or buy local because we feel better about it. But like, how much connection do we really have with what it takes to produce that food? And I think that that disconnect has had horrible consequences for our health as a society. And one of the ways that I saw that illustrated was around meat. So I stopped eating meat, save for fish, uh, when I was about 14 or 15, which is never really a thing for me. Um, when I lived in Oakland, I'd go to Whole Foods. People would pick up their grass-fed beef in a package, plastic package, take it home. I'm sure they weren't thinking about the cow. You know, they were just thinking about the meat. When I moved up here to Mendocino, people were like raising their meat and slaughtering it themselves. And like using it to feed their entire family for like a year, like every part of the animal. And they were tanning the hide and using it for warmth. And I was like, wow, that's a whole different approach to food than I ever felt growing up in the suburbs or the city. And that has influenced so much how I view cannabis. And then, you know, getting back to personal plants, having this thought of, oh gosh, here comes psychedelics. And are we going to see the same trajectory? where 10 years from now, there's just a bodega on the corner with DMT chocolates and no one has any idea where DMT comes from or what happened to the plant that was produced to make that DMT, who grew that plant, how much are they being paid, what kind of conditions are they working in, what was the carbon footprint of that plant being made into a DMT chocolate and then being sent to you. I just felt like we would lose that entirely. And I think it's detrimental to our health when we do it with food, not to sound too hippy dippy, but I think it's detrimental to our soul and our spirit and our energy when we do that with psychedelics. Oh yeah. So personal plants really became about plant relationships with cannabis and psychedelics. And then that became, well, we just need people to grow these plants. We need people to understand what it's like to grow an ayahuasca vine or to grow a Datura plant. Uh, we need folks to understand that passion flower has the same chemicals in it as ayahuasca, but yet it's all over the place. 
Um, we need folks to understand that if you want mescaline, grow wachuma, do not grow peyote. And so personal plants really morphed into this psychedelic plant nursery. Um, I ended up getting connected with an amazing garden down in Oakland that grows these plants. Um, I connected with them and they agreed with my mission of wanting people to develop relationships with these plants, to not have psychedelics be this frivolous mass consumption movement. And so we started selling plants and seeds from psychedelic plants. Everything is legal. These plants are all legal to grow. The only plant we sell that isn't in any way restricted is salvia divinorum. We can't ship that to all 50 states because in some states it's restricted. But everything else is completely legal to grow. And so our idea is, look, I don't care if you're going to consume psychedelics. I just want you to understand the plants first. And I want you to feel like you have a responsibility to this plant to take this seriously and not have it just be like, oh, we're just going to consume, consume, consume until there's no plants left. And then we'll make a synthetic version of the chemical and then we'll consume, consume, consume. To me, that is not doing a service to these plants. In fact, it's disrespecting them on like the highest level. Yeah, I think really important points. Definitely something I think about when I think about the evolution of psychedelics. Um, it's so important to maintain the morals and ethics and principles around these medicines as the industry evolves. And I definitely have concerns that it will start to go the way of the cannabis industry in terms of this hyper consumerism, you know, the fact that people aren't consuming psychedelics as often generally as, you know, co constant cannabis consumers, you know, gives me some hope in that regard and the work of, of, uh, maps and yourself and others, you know, certainly gives me some faith, but, um, it's good to be talking about these issues because, uh, I'm worried that, you know, it is going to go the consumerist way. Yeah. And, you know, when we were just talking about what happens when somebody eats too much of an edible and doesn't know what they're doing, I mean, translate that to somebody eating four grams of psilocybin because they don't know what four grams is. You know, I was just watching um, the How to Change Your Mind on Netflix, and they talk about Albert Hoffman taking 25 milligrams or 0.25 milligrams of LSD, um, you know, which is measured in micrograms. So, you know, if somebody's like, oh, I'm used to eating this much cannabis, therefore I should eat that much mushrooms. Like we can't just assume that society is going to know how to responsibly consume psychedelics because they haven't had the opportunity to, and they haven't had the opportunity for the education. So in my mind, it's like, start with the plant, get to know the plant. You'll have a much better consumption experience at the end of the day. I know that the cannabis I grow myself is always the best cannabis. Well, I'm interested to learn more myself about personal plants and hope that our, our listeners are as well. Great. Well, they can go to mypersonalplants.com. That's our website. Um, you can order plant kits, seeds, cuttings. We've got cacti, um, all sourced from this beautiful organic garden in the middle of downtown Oakland. So it's, it's really quite a lovely scenario all around. Beautiful. And um, I do want to dig into your other kind of more personal project, but First, I would love to hear a little bit about your role at New Frontier Data. Uh, sure. So New Frontier is also a company that I've known for quite some time. When we were doing Prop 64 back in 2015, one of the claims of the opposition was that we don't need to legalize because no one's in jail for cannabis in California. That was the message. 
And it was very hard to combat this rhetoric because California does a terrible job of keeping records of what drug someone is in jail for. So they have a code for drugs, and you can look and see how many people have felonies for drugs, but they don't break it down by drug. And each county has their own method of keeping those data. So sometimes it's just a handwritten ledger. Sometimes it was a computer file. So we basically, DPA, hired New Frontier. They were pretty new at the time, but I had met uh, John and Giada, who were the founders. And we hired them to calculate how many people were in jail for cannabis in California. And they literally had to do records requests for every single county. They had to decipher crazy handwriting, um, but they did it. And they figured it out. And it was a huge boon to the campaign because that was data we absolutely needed. So I've always been a huge fan of theirs. You know, I love data. I love science. Uh, in drug policy, too much is based on rhetoric, emotion, feeling, and not enough is based on science. So I always appreciate the organizations that are there just to hold up the numbers. Um, I think it's crucial as we move forward in policy development that we have those institutions. So when I decided that I was going to leave Flow Cannabis, I really wanted to go back into research. And so I called John up, um, John Kagia, uh, who's yeah, our chief I'm a knowledge huge, officer. Huge fan of John's, by the way. I've also spent a little bit of time with Giada. She's she's wonderful. I don't know her as well, but um, I miss the days where I would see John, you know, every few months at a conference. I, I haven't been going to them as much. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I really just um, respect and admired them and what they built at New Frontier. And if I really, honestly, if I had any place I could go work. Uh, that was my number one. That was like my number one school, right, that I was applying to. So I got in touch with John and I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the private sector. I'd really love to come in and do research. I've got all these ideas about policy and what we can look at. And it just so happened that at the time they were looking to kind of move in a direction around public policy. They did a lot of consumer data. They did a lot of industry and economic projections, but they hadn't done as much with policy. So we thought it'd be a really good fit. And so I came on at the beginning of 2022 as vice president of public policy research. And it's been fantastic. It's like a dream job. I mean, you know, all I've wanted my entire career is access to really good data around cannabis. And, you know, I tried to collect it myself and I tried to get the federal government to fund the collection of it. And so to come into a position where, I can go and look at millions of data points from dispensaries and see what kind of products people are buying. You know, we do our own consumer survey of over 4,000 cannabis consumers. It's a nationally representative sample. We ask them everything I could ever want to know. So being able to go in there, I, I did a report not too long ago on millennial consumers. So I could go in there, you know, I could slice and dice the sample by generation and then look at generational differences. Um, so it's just really been a dream come true. And it's been, I feel like I'm being rewarded a bit for all of those years that I pushed and pushed and pushed to get good cannabis research done because now I'm there and I have the opportunity to do it. And I, I get to work with an amazing research team of incredibly talented people who all bring their own unique benefits and talents to the table. You know, whether that's looking at big, huge data sets or whether that's doing economic modeling and trying to figure out what's going to happen next, 
Um, it's just been a pleasure and an honor to work with really smart people. Well, it's really exciting to hear that you have those resources in terms of data and team. And um, I look forward to seeing the research that comes from that. Oh, well, it's out there all the time. I mean, the amount of research they produce is really incredible. Um, and then they also have software. So, you know, businesses can sign up for Equio or Next Tech, and then they have access to all the raw data. So if they want to just jump in and see, you know, how different dispensaries in their area are doing or how certain brands are performing or what revenue looks like, it really just gives people the tools. And in an industry that for so long operated in the shadows, the ability for business folks to go in and actually look at what's really happening in the marketplace is something that our industry has never had before. Every other industry has this kind of stuff built in and we never had it. So I think it's such a, an amazing gem uh, in a very uncertain environment. Definitely. I uh, have been fortunate to use Equio in the past on, on some cannabis businesses I've worked on. Certainly a very valuable tool and um, what a win for them to add you to their team. Oh, well, thank you. It's a mutual win. <laughs> Those are the best kind. <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about this endeavor, Sacred Garden. Um you know, it, I think it's clear from what we've talked about, kind of the things that have led to it. But I would be curious to hear, you know, how you feel you got there, how it started and just kind of giving us uh, an explanation of what it is. You know, I was so bored because I was doing nothing and had nothing on my plate. And I said, you know what? I need to start another company. No, that's only half true. Um, so Sacred Garden really started as I started getting interested in Web3 technology which happened at the end of last year. I had some friends that were into it. I really had rejected it, to be honest. Like I had no interest in the metaverse. I had no interest in virtual reality. Like I was out South by Southwest a couple of years ago. They had a whole virtual reality like room. You could, I was not interested at all. Um, I was a in real life gal. Maybe it's because I'm a Gen Xer. I was like, I just want things that I can touch that I can smell that are tangible. Like that's the world I want to live in. And then I did this mushroom trip one day and it was golden teachers, which I always find teach me a lot, which is probably why they're called that. And it was during this trip that I felt this other message coming through. And this other message was like, you're not going to stop technology just because you choose not to participate in it. But technology needs someone like you that's going to remind people that there's a world outside of virtual reality. And that's going to help bridge the in real life with the technology so it doesn't become a mutually exclusive offering. And so after I had that experience, I was like, mm, well, I'm not going to ignore the mushrooms because you shouldn't do that. So I went out and I bought an Oculus headset and that for folks that don't know, that's the VR headset that you put over your eyes and takes you into the virtual reality space. So I got one of those and I started playing around in virtual reality. Now I'm not a LARPer. I'm not a multiplayer game person. Like I'm really not interested in any of that stuff. But I was very interested in the alternate realities that were being created in there and what that meant for being exposed to things that you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. So you can go to the tops of volcanoes. You can go to the North Pole. You can go to Mars 
And you feel like you're ha- not, it's very different than looking at a screen, even an IMAX screen, right? Because it's 360. So you're looking around, you're looking down, you're looking up and you feel like you're there. You can go and be steps away from the shuttle while it's launching. And so what that told me is that this technology is going to give people opportunities to have comparable experiences to what they would have in real life, but maybe people who can't afford to have those experiences in the real world, or for environmental reasons, maybe they shouldn't be having those experiences in the real world. And so that's really what kind of gave me this idea for Sacred Garden, along with my two co-founders, was, all right, we've talked about this like interest in psychedelic plants and how it's really increasing. And people are going to the Amazon and they're traipsing through the jungle. They want to see an ayahuasca vine. And some people will never be able to afford to go and look at these plants in real life or take the time off work, but they should still have access to them. And how can we use these tools, these kind of new technological tools, much as the way we would have thought, how can I use a website back in 1995, right? How can we use these tools to kind of further our mission around psychedelic plant conservation, which is what we're all about. We want these plants to be protected. We want people to develop relationships with them. We want this to be part of a mindfulness practice. So we were like, all right, we've got that goal. Here's all these new technological tools that were just invented. How do we use them? So we developed Sacred Garden as a platform to kind of build a community around psychedelic plant conservation that takes advantage of these tools. And some of those tools are virtual reality and the metaverse and kind of how do we help people explore the native habitats of these plants without actually having to go and walk through the native habitats of these plants. But it was also thinking about tools like NFTs, which I know is like a negative word for a lot of folks, but um, we look at it as just another technology, right? So for example, Starbucks just launched an NFT. It's basically a membership token and it gives you discounts and access to special promotions. It's all built into a digital asset. Not super exciting. So we were like, how do we do that for plants? So how do we create a digital asset that gives people membership into this community where they can experience these plants, grow these plants, learn about these plants, uh, attend events about these plants, And instead of having to buy a ticket every time or hold on to your physical card, the NFT is basically your digital token of membership. So we started working on this project back in like January of 2022. um, And we just launched uh, this week the actual NFT membership opportunity. So it's been a lot. It's a lot of technology. It's a lot of behind the scenes stuff, you know, kind of how building a website in 1995 was very different than building a website today, where you basically just get on Squarespace and like put a bunch of blocks around and you've got a website, you know, back in 1995, it was like coding by hand in some kind of really convoluted program. So like it is that. So, you know, you need developers and you need people that kind of understand how this works, but We feel like it's the right time to launch this type of community because the interest in psychedelic plants is there and people want to come together, but because of the legality, you can't promote on Facebook, you can't promote on Instagram, you can barely send SMS text messages, it's hard to get any kind of e-commerce platform to support you, it's hard to maintain banking. 
So we're like, well, then screw all of that stuff. We're just going to go straight to the community and we can do that with crypto and blockchain technology and NFTs. We don't need those intermediaries that make it so hard for the psychedelic plant community to come together. We can facilitate that community peer to peer using this technology. So that's our goal is to build that community. And along with that, I talked about the mushrooms telling me I need to make sure that people are staying connected to the physical world. So we are creating a decentralized psychedelic plant marketplace. Not that dissimilar from personal plants, but basically you'll be able to go on, enter your zip code and what plants you're interested in. And then we will match you with a farmer in our network that's closest to you that also has the plants you want. So we're cutting down on the carbon footprint of distribution. We're helping people create psychedelic plant communities in their actual in real life community by learning about people near them that are interested in these plants. And we're keeping it completely non-commercial. So these are backyard gardeners who just happen to grow extra plants and wanna be able to share them with the community. And so we're building this as a way to take advantage of these technologies, but at the same time, help people keep a foot in real life. Um, there's actually a word for it, which people have feelings about, which is fidgetal. So P-H-Y-G-I-T-A-L. So a synthesis of physical and digital. And that's really what we're doing. You know, we want people to be able to go into a VR space and go to a virtual reality garden and see all these amazing, fantastical plants in their full glory. And we want people to be able to grow them at home. And we're hoping that building this community now as this technology evolves gives us an opportunity to grow it as people adopt the technology and become more comfortable with it. Right now, there's still a huge divide between kind of the Web3 and Web2 communities, but you can buy our NFT with a credit card. You don't need a crypto wallet. Um, we're really trying to bridge those communities um, with a, coming around a, a mission um, of, of plant conservation. We worked with some amazing nonprofits to donate a percentage of what we make off of the NFTs to them so they can continue their work. Um, so it's really community building almost in the purest sense because there are no gatekeepers. It's like community social work. You basically are like, hey, we're having a pizza party at the town hall. And everyone come and let's talk about what we're going to do about, you know, fire safety. Um, and so we're like, how do we recreate that, but in a digital space? Yeah. Well, congratulations on the launch. Thank you. You know, I've certainly thought for a while that psychedelics and Web3 could go together well. And it's it's really cool to see how you're executing that. And I'm um, just adding to my list of homework for after the interview of checking all this out uh, on a deeper level. Well, if folks want to check out Sacred Garden, um, our website is just sacredgarden.com, but no E's. So S-A-C-R-D-G-A-R-D-N.com. That's also our handle in all of the places. So TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, um, you can find us. Uh, but we're really about community building. So if this is a, something you're interested in, psychedelic plant conservation, there's no pressure um, it's really just come and listen and be a part of it and uh, help us with our mission. That's great. Um, it'll be really interesting to dig in and I'll be sure to include all the links uh, in the show notes. Great. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was your investigations of the use of cannabis as a substitute for alcohol and other drugs. I mean, 
when I was first getting into cannabis, that was definitely one of the things that drew me in was meeting people that were saying, you know, I had surgery and I was getting addicted to opioids and I substituted some or all of them with cannabis and it saved me. Um, you know, additionally myself, as I've, I've become a more heavy cannabis consumer over the years, my alcohol consumption has decre decreased to a very minimal amount. Um, so I'd be really interested to hear what the research says about that. Oh, absolutely. And it's fascinating. Um, so I really got involved in that that line of research from my own doctor, uh, Dr. Frank Lucido in Berkeley, who has a family practice for like 40, 50 years and was one of the first doctors to actually do medical cannabis recommendations way back in the Prop 215 days. And I, I'm not going to say like he's a real doctor because I'm not saying that there's like not real doctors that do cannabis recommendations. But let me just say that like when you go to him, it's going to a full medical exam. Like you have to fill out paperwork ahead of time. You go to the office. He does all your vitals. He talks to you about your cannabis use. And so he had this very extensive form that you had to fill out every time you went to the doctor. And one of the things he asked on there was, are you using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol? Are you using cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs? And when I did my doctoral dissertation in 2005, I used his survey with his permission for a lot of the questions that I ended up putting on my patient survey, including that one about substitution. So I did this study with 130 patients, which at the time was the largest sample of medical cannabis patients in history, 130 in 2005. So it just shows you how little we knew, even in 2005, about the use of cannabis as medicine. Um, and I asked them that question. And, you know, maybe surprisingly, I didn't really know what I was going to find. When the results came back, it showed that about 50% were using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol. About 75% were using cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs. And then about a quarter were using cannabis as a substitute for some other illicit substance. I also found a higher instance of a previous alcohol and drug treatment among medical cannabis consumers without success. So talking about how they did go to treatment, it didn't work for them, but that cannabis was working for them. So this was really fascinating to me, um, yet it was a sample of 130, which wasn't a lot. So I replicated that study at Berkeley Patients Group with 350 patients, and I basically asked them just about substitution, and lo and behold, I got pretty much the same results, about 50% for alcohol, 75% for prescription, and about a quarter for uh, illicit. So then I thought... Well, maybe it's just California people. Like maybe this is just a Bay Area thing. So a good friend of mine, a researcher named Philippe Lucas up in Canada, replicated that study with a thousand patients from Canada at like three different dispensaries. And lo and behold, we found the same thing again, around the same rates of substitution. Now, I remember when I published this study, it was in 2009 in the Harm Reduction Journal. And oh my gosh, uh, it's still to this day the thing that I've published that's gotten the most response. I mean, it was in the, in the newspaper in India and in Germany. I mean, I had reporters from all over the world calling me, asking me about it. It was in like popular media um, because this whole concept, when we've been taught that cannabis was a gateway drug for so many years and no people were saying, no, cannabis is helping me not use these other substances. It was like such a cognitive dissonant kind of thing that people's heads kind of exploded. It's an exit drug. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that was what Philippe called it, right? An exit drug. 
And so I thought that there was a lot of potential for, for this work. Of course, the federal government had zero interest in funding it. And after I left Berkeley Patients Group, I didn't really have the opportunity to engage in research the way that I had before. Fortunately, it was such an interesting finding that a whole cadre of researchers picked it up and started doing research on it and started looking into the nuances of how people were substituting and why they were substituting. Um, when we did our research in every study, the top three reasons for why people were substituting was um, less harmful side effects from cannabis, less potential for dependence with cannabis, and that cannabis actually made their symptoms better compared to these other drugs that they were using. Um, and then in about 2000 and some year, the 2000 teens, something in there, um, I did a study with HelloMD and Kent State University where we did a survey, an online survey, and we ended up getting a few thousand patients um, again, asking them about substitution, but this time specifically for opiates. And one of the most interesting findings was just the efficacy that people report with cannabis versus opiates. Um, folks felt that cannabis was way more effective, significantly more effective for pain management than the opiates were and had significantly fewer side effects. So I think that, and that study was published in the journal Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research, to this day, I think it's their most cited article or like one of the top cited articles because, you know, again, this is happening in the context of, I'm not going to call it the opiate crisis because I don't like moral panics, but in a scenario where we were seeing an increase in opiate overdose, especially fatal overdose, and we were having folks like Brett Favre, who I always call out is like the first mainstream person to come out and say, I was using opiates as prescribed by my doctor and got addicted. And I think it was a huge wake up call for people that here was this like elite athlete who has all of these trainers and health professionals watching him all the time and everything he does is so regimented. And if he could become dependent on opiates just through the normal course of treatment, what did that mean for the average person that doesn't have a whole host of trainers watching them and is basically just able to go to the doctor and get a refill every month? without anyone asking questions. So I think this idea of cannabis being able to be a substitute specifically for opiates was very, very appealing. Of course, you have the pharmaceutical companies that do not like this research at all, nor do the alcohol companies. Um, but I also think there was a very high level of interest in the alcohol cannabis substitution phenomena, which I credit a little bit to the rise of cannabis beverages. So this idea that cannabis beverages not only provide THC, but literally in the exact same form you're getting your alcohol is such an important part of whether it's a su successful substitute. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And um, I hope that we can continue to make cannabis more ubiquitous in society and lessen the usage of some of those other more harmful substances. Um, I'm curious, what is your long-term hope for cannabis legalization and how it becomes integrated into our society? Well, I'm going to sound like a bit of a Debbie Downer here. I, my hope for cannabis legalization is that people don't go to jail. That's my hope. My hope is that people aren't getting searched for smelling like weed. Um, if their car smells like weed, it's not a reason to pull them over. 
if they get found with weed on them, they're not getting arrested. Um, they don't have the collateral sanctions associated with a drug felony. They're not prohibited from getting a job because they use cannabis. They're not prohibited from being a good parent because they use cannabis. Cannabis use is not used as a weapon in custody battles and other types of court cases. That's my hope for legalization. And I used to say also that I hoped we'd have this amazing new model of capitalism where it's all the little guys and everybody cares and it's all this like collective sharing of community. But I, I think I've kind of come around to the fact that that isn't going to happen in America, at least. Um, you know, I do think that we are capitalists and that's how we're going to arrange cannabis, especially as it's going to be regulated by the federal government. It's one of the things that makes me excited about other countries like Spain, um, looking at cannabis legalization, because they have other potential models of commerce that we do not have. And we could see a better model out there. I know one exists versus what we've done here. Um, we, I just don't think we've seen the country that has that model for commerce legalize it yet, but it'll come. So for cannabis, for me, it's really about criminal justice and access. Um, I want everyone that wants to access cannabis to be able to, and I want people who really need it for medical purposes to have increased access and decreased pricing. I would love to see um, health insurance cover at least part of the cost of cannabis so that people really have an option between prescription drugs and cannabis. Because if you're going to get your opiates for free, but you're going to pay $50 an eighth for cannabis, it's not truly a choice if you don't have a lot of money. So I think there's things we can tweak within legalization to make it better. But at the end of the day, at least in America, I do think it's going to follow a capitalism model. Um, you know, we're already seeing the impact of multi-state operators, not only on policy in current states, but in future states like Florida, where there's really a push for only a very few number of companies to run the entire show. And that's kind of how we are here. I mean... I don't think this should be really a surprise to anyone. If anyone's seen those really interesting infographics, that's like, here's like this one company and it owns all of these other companies, even other companies that you think are big. It's like, oh, you think Kellogg's is big? They're owned by someone. It's like, oh, you know, you think that like this is a huge corporate. No, they're owned by someone. And there's only like five companies that own everything. So I would like to think that cannabis could go a different route. Um, it doesn't look that way. I know we were kind of counting on the consumer rejecting that model, but the reality is the consumers are like Gen Zers and millennials, and they're not as interested in the kumbaya collective cannabis culture as the Gen Xers and the boomers. They want a standardized product at a decent price that's going to be available at their local dispensary. Do you think that the psychedelics industry can avoid these pitfalls? Well, see, that's a great question. And this is something that I've actually been asked to talk about a lot. And I think it's a very timely question because we're kind of at that precipice of uh, psychedelics industry happening. And there's a lot of questions about what that's going to look like. Uh, you mentioned something earlier about the difference in consumption habits. So people that are regular cannabis consumers are consuming four or five times a day. Even if somebody is a very hardcore psychonaut, they're probably not consuming mushrooms more than once a week unless they're microdosing. So I do think the consumer behavior will dictate a bit of a different commerce platform for psychedelics because people aren't going to be buying it 
with the same regularity that they are with cannabis, except for microdosing. So I think the microdose market will look a lot like the cannabis market where, you know, people that are using, you know, even if they're doing the Fatiman protocol and they're doing one day on two days off, they're still doing it consistently. They're buying it in like a package of like 20 capsules. They're not just buying like a little bit of mushrooms. So I do think the microdose industry around psychedelics might mimic cannabis and capitalism a little bit more. But I think that the other type of, of psychedelics, right, like the hero dose, the therapeutic use, the shamanic use, I think it's going to look different. And it's because I do not think that the majority of product is going to be coming from consumer packaged goods or that the majority of revenue is going to be coming from consumer packaged goods. I think it's going to be coming from the therapeutic integration side. And it's going to come from, all right, who's your sitter and who's helping you and who's telling you what you should use and who's you know helping you integrate afterwards and what are the apps to do that and the journals and the VR experiences all focused around preparing someone to have the experience, helping them through the experience, and then helping them integrate the experience afterward versus being the one to provide the product. Um, I think that's one way it'll be different. I think another way it'll be different is the biomedical development. I mean, it's much easier to move psychedelics through the FDA process because they're one chemical, one reaction. So when you're trying to make a pill for mushrooms, it's psilocybin. And if you don't have the other components of the mushroom in there, it doesn't really impact the effect the way not having the terpenes or the flavonoids affects the impact of cannabis. So cannabis has had a hell of a time making it through the FDA pathway because it's such a complicated plant. You can't whittle it down to one chemical. Psychedelics are somewhat different. So I think unlike cannabis, we will see a very fast tracking of pharmaceutical versions of psychedelic plants. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the, the therapy is one of the most important aspects of the psychedelic movement. And I, I hope it does you know, go mostly the way that you mentioned. I hope so too. I mean, I think that people are trying to take it seriously. I mean, the frivolousness will emerge. It will rear its ugly head. And there will be reports of people using psychedelics and not having good outcomes. Like that's going to happen. Just like we heard all the reports of the pot brownies and then it was the dabbing and like there will be, you know, oh, so-and-so got into the mushroom chocolate and didn't know they were mushrooms and kids getting into mushroom chocolate and gummies. I mean, these things will all happen. They're not a reason to keep anything illegal. They are a reason to have open, honest conversations about not only the benefits, but the harms of making these things more accessible and in forms that are more appealing to not just the user, but their kids and their pets. Yeah, definitely conversations worth having. And uh, I hope that the educational aspect continues to grow as well. I think it will. I, I hope it doesn't take like a rash of negative happenings in the news for people to get serious about it. Um, I also worry a bit about like the paper shaman where it's kind of like, take this three hour course and you can be a shaman. And now you're ready to lead people through spiritual ceremonies. Like that makes me a little nervous. I hope that the consumer realizes that there's a difference and doesn't pay these kind of shamans in a box much mind, but I don't think that they're there yet. I think that they're still a little bit naive. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some scary aspects and I also hope that doesn't lead to people thinking that bans work. We, we've seen 
with all of these substances and with some other things in society that banning them doesn't keep them from happening. It just generally keeps them from happening safely. So a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So you've done some really awesome, impactful work over the years. It's, your research has had tremendous impact on a lot of society around these issues. And I'm curious if you have a story of when you really saw a moment where your work was affecting change or when it really hit you like, wow, this effort affected this. Well, this is going to make me sound pompous, but if I was a dude, I would say this. So I'm going to say it. You know, there was a time, I think it was about a year ago, someone had posted this graphic that was like public opinion on cannabis. And it showed that like starting in like 1998, it had this really sharp trajectory upward. And I was like, I did some of that. Like some of that trajectory, like not all of it, but some of that upward trajectory, I feel personally responsible for. Because most of my career has been spent being the doctor who also supports cannabis. And oh my gosh, isn't that so shocking? We should ask her why. So I feel like playing that role absolutely had an impact on how people viewed cannabis and whether they viewed prohibition as the right approach. So, you know, I know that it's a, like a, a, an ocean that I'm claiming, an, you know, that I, you know, created an ocean. But I do feel that my work had a very large role in getting us to where we are today, going from complete prohibition when I started to, you know, how, over half the country living someplace where they have access to legal cannabis and not that long of a time. Yeah, I mean, it, it really has been remarkable. And um, thank you for your efforts in that. And I, I'm glad that you recognize that because they have been really impactful. Well, thank you. Absolutely. And you talked earlier about how much you appreciated mentorship and how you provided to others. Now, is there anyone in particular that you want to highlight as a particularly impactful mentor? Well, I already talked about Ethan Nadelman and I talked about Rob McCoon, who I did study under when I went to Berkeley, but I really had some amazing female academic mentors coming up. And I feel very, very fortunate because in academia, it's a lot of men. Um, social work tends to be a little bit more female oriented. Um, but I mentioned Lee Cascudis, who was my supervisor at Alcohol Research Group when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, um, which was funded by the federal government, by the way. They thought they were just funding a pre-doctoral fellowship. They did not know I was doing research on cannabis, but it's probably the very first federally funded study on medical cannabis dispensaries. They just didn't know that that's what they were funding. But after my study was done, I, did a, uh, I was part of a press conference in San Diego um, and I mentioned my research. Well, the federal government called Lee and they were like, um, this woman is a federally funded researcher. She cannot be saying anything positive about cannabis in the press. And Lee was like, um, she conducted this research. She's allowed to report the results of her research and there's no way you can tell her not to. And so I've always really appreciated that because it would have been really easy for her to call me in and say, you know, I agree with you, but... We can't rock the boat and we've got to play the game, but she didn't. She stood up for me. So I've always appreciated that. And then I had two really amazing professors at Berkeley, um, Eileen Gambrell and um, Lorraine Medanik. Uh, Lorraine was my dissertation chair and she's really kind of like was my mentor the whole time I was at Berkeley. And she studied drug policy like back in the day. Like she was at UCLA, um, you know, she was at Johns Hopkins 
And really before anybody was willing to say that drug policy should be challenged, she was out there talking about it from a public health perspective. So I really appreciated her mentorship. And then Dr. Gambrell is one of the most well-known people in the world on the topic of evidence-based practice, that if you're going to do some kind of practice in mental health, it should be based on what the science says. And she wrote so many textbooks on this. Going to social work conferences with her was like going to the Oscars with Jack Nicholson. Like everyone knew who she was. Everyone waited in line after we were done speaking to like tell her how much they loved her work. And she basically taught me to question everything. And this was before we had fake news. And this was before people really needed to pay attention and have critical thinking. And she really taught me how to analyze information. And when you are so used to propaganda, so secretly and sneakily making its way through your discipline, you have to be good at not only like knowing what that looks like, but being able to articulate to other people why it's propaganda. And so she was so good at that. And I, I just really appreciate that lesson because it's something I use every single day, even now um, in my work. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's cool to see the kind of impact that people like that can have on an individual that then impacts the world. Yeah, you never know. That's why, and that, again, that's why anyone that wants to meet with me, I always say yes, because I've had these am amazing experiences over the years where someone will either get in touch with me or I'll run into them somewhere or they'll meet someone that knows me and they'll say, oh my gosh, like five years ago, Amanda probably doesn't even remember me, but I asked her at a conference if we could have a meeting and that changed my life. And then I went on to do this. So it's like, you never know. And I think that part of being an advocate, part of being an activist is planting seeds that you may never see grow, but knowing that you're planting them and that that's your job. And that's what I've always felt. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And um, if you'd like, you can ask me a question. All right, I have a question for you. What's your favorite drug? <laughs> um, that is, uh, that's, that's an interesting question because, you know, there's so many different ways you could go with that. I would say at this moment in my life, I mean, I, I, I love cannabis. It's a big part of my life. It's, it's brought me a, a lot of, you know, peace in terms of relieving anxiety and things like that. But I would say overall, in terms of my thinking, psilocybin has probably been the most impactful. Um, it's actually was a reflection on, after a psilocybin trip that I came up with the name of this podcast, People Are the Answer. And um, so I just... I love sort of that heightened sense of reality that it gives me and um, a different perspective on life that it gives me. And um, there's certainly, you know, other substances that do that as well, but I, I'd probably land on psilocybin. Nice. Good answer. The mushrooms are happy. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I really, I believe in the power of fungi in general and that they're potentially, you know, one of the, the smarter species around, you know, people don't realize how much a part of the environment fungi are. And when you tell me the mushrooms are speaking to you, like I, I truly believe they were trying to send a message. And, you know, maybe some people that listen to this think I'm crazy that aren't into the drug, the drug stuff, but no, you know. you're not crazy at all. No. I mean, if you, if anybody out there Googles mushrooms talking, mm -hmm. like they're actually machines that you can use to hear what plants are saying to hear the sound that's coming from them. And mushrooms absolutely talk. The whole mycelium network, I mean, they're talking to each other. 
for anyone out there that hasn't seen Fantastic Fungi, I highly recommend it. Mm. It's just such a fascinating way to learn about mushrooms and not just the psychedelic kind, um, but all the mushrooms. They're just such an interesting uh, species. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic Fungi. Highly recommend it. <clears throat> um, and then the, the question that I ask every guest, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Oh, so this was so difficult for me. I was looking at this question. And I mean, of course, like my immediate reaction is climate change. Like my immediate, immediate, right? Is like, we need to be able to go back to when we first understood what was happening, like in the 60s, 50s, whenever. And we need to take action. Like that, I feel, is probably the biggest threat right now is, is climate change. But given that my background is in drug policy, um, I would really love to go back and, I mean, you guess you'd really have, in the U.S., you'd really have to go back to the first opium laws uh, in San Francisco uh, because those are really the first drug laws in the country. I'd want to go back and be like, look, I know you want to keep tabs on this immigrant population. I know the way you think you can do it is by making their drug of choice illegal. You don't want to go down that road. It's going to have implications forever that are going to ruin the lives of people you can't even imagine how many people. I mean, that was really the impetus of the drug war was, I don't like those people. They're using X drug. Let's make X drug illegal so that we can get rid of those people. And that was a philosophy that started in San Francisco with opium smoking, was taken to Mexican immigration around cannabis in Texas and in places like Louisiana, proliferated through crack cocaine sentencing disparities, psychedelics, uh, prohibition. I mean, all of this was around not liking the population that was benefiting from that substance. So if I could go back and convince folks at that time that there were better ways to work with a new immigrant population than to do this thing, um, that would have changed the entire trajectory. I feel like that was really when we started the war on drugs. Yeah, I really wish we could go back and change that as well. And um, at least we are moving slowly in the right direction. Slowly, but we're getting there. So I, re I really, really appreciate all the time that you've spent here. This is actually going to be the longest episode so far. So hopefully people get through it, can listen to it in parts, etc. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you and I could spend more hours talking about drug policy and drugs. But uh, I'm sure everyone listening uh, has really been impressed with uh, your background and all of your efforts over the years. Uh, and I'm certainly going to include links to everything we've discussed, but how can people best support you and your impact? Well, go to the, the links. So, you know, check out personal plans, check out sacred garden, check out new frontier data. Um, you know, all of the amazing reports that they do on the webinars. Um, but, you know, I would say, and you know, find me, I'm on social media and follow me and I do things and say things. Um, but I would say if you really want to support this work, talk to people about drugs and not in like a, ooh, he, 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 he drugs kind of way, but in a real discussion kind of way. Like, I feel like we're grown up enough now. Um, you know, Carl Hart has that amazing book, Drug Use for Grownups, which I love. I mean, Carl Hart, again, also one of my amazing like mentors and heroes in this space. But, you know, it's time to stop giggling like we're 13 year olds and we just saw a naked woman right? Like we have to have honest discussions about mental health and we have to have honest discussions about cannabis. And, you know, we can have a whole other show, but nothing is harmless. 
And I think sometimes in an effort to combat the horrible stereotyping and negative messaging from prohibition, those who support cannabis kind of go the other direction where everything's fine and everything's good and there is no limit and everyone should have everything. And of course, we know that's not true. And Eileen Gambrell would say, that's bullshit. Like really think about, critically think about what the beneficial and harmful use of substances looks like. And so I think the more discussions we have with each other around this and like honest discussions, the better off we're going to be when and if we increase access to these amazing plants. Couldn't have said it better. And uh, Amanda, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it uh, and excited to continue our, our own conversations. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been such a great conversation and I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.